The 10th Collective is an initiative from Revision Path and State of Black Design, created to help connect black designers searching for their next opportunity with the companies that want to hire them. So if you're a black designer and you're looking for a new job, go to the10thcollective.com to sign up for free or check out the link in the show notes. Speaking of jobs, Revision Path's job board is part of the 10th Collective, and you can go there to browse job listings, post your own job listings, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Design B&B is looking for a designer in Chicago, Illinois. Peak Design is looking for two roles for their San Francisco office, an assistant product developer and a mechanical design engineer. For more information on these listings, including DEI statements, qualifications, salary, and more, visit revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. We're here to help you find your next big opportunity today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They're always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance life with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. For 10 years, Revision Path has been dedicated to showcasing black designers and creatives from all over the world. In order to keep bringing you the content that you love, we need your support now more than ever. If you're in a position to help us grow, here's how you can contribute. Visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and click the donate button there to make a one-time, monthly, or annual donation to help keep Revision Path running strong. Thanks for your support. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Fungi Dubey. Fungi is an independent brand, visual, and webflow web designer located in Harare, Zimbabwe. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I am Fungi Dube. I am a brand, visual, and webflow web designer based in Harare, Zimbabwe. I have been designing, according to LinkedIn, for almost eight years now, so I think that's super cool. And I mostly am inspired, not mostly, largely inspired by the profound nuances that are embedded in African culture. So if you are to interact with my work or engage with my work online, you're probably going to see that a lot of it is really centered on African narratives and seeing how I can tell those stories in a really fresh and inspiring way. So how has the year been going for you so far? The year has been good. I feel like at the very start of it, I was kind of flailing about just trying to get everything in place and trying to organize myself personally, just getting my goals out there and that sort of thing. So it was a bit of a whirlwind. But as 
it has progressed. It's gotten better. I feel like I am more in control. I've regained all balance and it's been really good. I've been working on some super exciting projects that hopefully you'll see the light of day soon. But yeah, so far, so good. Do you have any like goals in particular that you want to accomplish for the year? Definitely, definitely. I have a lot of sort of business-centered goals when it comes to being a solopreneur and running my own design brand. But I also have goals with regards to sort of tapping more into the design education space and seeing what I can do with that. So I do have two big major self-initiated projects that I'm working on that I'm also funding that I'm hoping are going to work. And then I can go and ask people for money to make them bigger. (laughs) But yeah, I, I definitely have a few things that I'm working on at the moment that I'd like to see done by the end of the year. Oh, nice. I mean, I'd love to learn a little bit more about them as much as you you know, want to go into detail about them. I don't want to keep it too generic, but pretty much the focus of these projects is that I feel that there's a gap. And the gap is seen in how when it comes to African design systems or African design education or African inspiration in general, when it comes to design is a little bit lacking so you are able to find references and that sort of thing on google you could probably go outside and have a chat with you know a roadside vendor or with your grandmother and find things and find out about things and that sort of thing but i want to be able to at least contribute towards the documentation of some of these things so there's definitely a gap when it comes to the literature that we can read with regards to african narratives and how to implement them in design so The projects really, one which is digital and one which is actually physical, are centered on being able to sort of start this documentation process, not only for designers now, but for designers to come. Mm, That sounds really interesting. I'd love to hear more about that once it's out in the world. Definitely. I'll I'll definitely let you in once there's something to to actually see. Yeah. Now, you just earlier described yourself as a solopreneur. Tell me just kind of more in general about your design work and what you specialize in doing. I don't know if I should take the audience all the way back, but initially when I did start designing, I sort of was everywhere. So you could have told me to do, I don't know, to design a flyer for the most random thing ever. And I would have done it because I was still learning and sort of getting my feet or dipping my toes in the water just to see what the industry was like. But I want to say probably at the like the four year mark of my seven plus almost eight year journey, it sort of clicked that I wanted to be able to work on projects that I could see myself in as a young black Zimbabwean female African designer. So I made the shift and my focus since then has been seeing how I can leverage African culture, African narratives nuances that are embedded in African cultures, like textures, colors, patterns, you know, the use of graphic symbols as a way of visual and global communication, and just seeing how I can sort of interpret that in a fresh, modern and inspired way and send that out to the world. So that is the base or the foundation of the work. And then the sort of disciplines that I work within would be the brand design space, the visual design space, and more recently, the Webflow design space. Yeah, I worked briefly. This was back from like 2017 to 
2020-ish, I worked for a company that was doing a lot of not no code, low code. They really actually wanted to be like more code, but we worked a lot with or kind of in Congress with other companies that were doing, you know, those sort of similar things like Webflow, basically taking the process of design and sort of democratizing it in a way where you could use a product to create things. I've used Webflow before. It's super powerful. I love how you're able to really kind of create full, really fully functioning sites with just kind of dragging and dropping. And if you want to get into the code, you can, but I like that Mm -hmm. the code is not a hindrance in order for you to create something. Yeah. It's really changed my perspective on design as well, because there's just so much that you can do. So Webflow is super flexible, infinite possibilities when it comes to very unique user experiences and customizing like, you know, really cool interfaces and animations and interactions. So yeah, it's it's been a really cool journey so far. This would be my second year in Webflow, but I'm just super excited to really learn more about it and see what I can create with it. So what does a, a typical day look like for you? Goodness. Okay. So my routine has changed a little bit as the start of this year, but I used to be 5 a.m. cub. I'm not anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have become 7 or 8 a.m. cub, and that's perfectly fine. Uh, so that's the time that I usually wake up. I tend to have my little morning routine. So whether that's, you know, like cleaning my space, making my bed, taking a shower, having some breakfast, but I will be settled at my desk around nine o'clock in the morning. I like to get administrative tasks out of the way first. So I check my emails, I check my socials. I am also a brand design coach with Flux Academy. So I tend to check all of those emails as well and see what's happening in the community with the students. And then right after that, which is probably maybe an hour, an hour and a half, then I'll dive into any kind work that I could be working on. So I tend to also like to work in little sprints throughout the day. So I'll dedicate like an hour block or an hour and a half block to a certain task and then I'll move on to the next one. But with Each and every single day, I do at least make sure that I prioritize time to go to the gym. So that's usually in the late afternoon. And if I am able to, I also schedule nap and (laughs) nap time because I think it's important to recharge and occasional dance breaks. It's so weird, but I have it in my schedule to be like, okay, I think that we need to just blast some tunes right now and just have a vibe at the desk so that things don't get too hectic and you don't feel like you're losing your mind. So yeah, that's pretty much what a typical day looks like for me in the evenings after gym, you know, dinner, a shower, a cup of tea, I'll wind down and maybe watch something on Netflix, read something before I go to bed. And we start it all over again. But my workday is usually done around 10 p.m. in the evening. I love that you have like these breaks in the day scheduled for play, or or I would say for non-work, but like you've got them Mm. scheduled in your calendar and you don't like move them around or anything. That's I love that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I, I think it's super important to prioritize things that just help us to also relax as designers, because I think it's super easy for us to be at our desks plugged behind our computer screens for like 16 hours a day. And you actually don't realize that you've been working for so long. So I'm 
a strong advocate for making sure that and balance looks different for everyone I should add that but just for ensuring that at least like there's a little bit of me time even in the chaos and the busyness of work so even if it's 20 minutes of just hey let's do some cheer dancing or let's take a quick nap I'm definitely going to take it for sure and I think you know it's super important especially when you're a solopreneur because Nobody's going <laughs> to nobody's going to prompt you to do that. Nobody's going to yeah. tell you, hey, maybe you should take a break. You have to do it like you have to schedule it in in order to make sure that you get that done. Yeah. And that's the thing as well. Like when you're a solopreneur, you have to wear many hats. So it can get really overwhelming and you find yourself sort of feeling a lot more burnt out and that sort of thing. So I had to be very intentional about ensuring that I scheduled this into my day to day so that at least I can cope with everything else that I have to do. Because I have to be social media manager, I have to be accountant, I have to be administrator, designer, strategist, all in one. So just having that time to yourself where you can just do nothing or where you can play really, really, really makes a difference. Yeah. So let's say you're, you're starting a new project that can, you know, be from a new client, from a current client. What does your creative process look like? From the jump, I like to have a discovery call. So I will, with any potential leads, I will write to them and just find out when they're available for us to meet. I will introduce myself in this call. I will also listen to them talk about their brand slash their business, their service, their product, what it is that they think they need for their brand. Because sometimes you will actually find out that they may think that they need branding, but maybe they actually need a strategy first, you know, and that sort of thing. So once we've sort of had the discovery call, then I follow that up with documentation. And what this documentation is, depending on what sort of service they're after, so whether it's brand design, whether it's web design, I'm just going to send them a questionnaire where they can then put all the words that we discussed in the call onto paper, just as a form of reference for the both of us. So that if I need to pick up any vital information and that sort of thing, then I know that I can always refer back to that document. It also helps me to set a project proposal, which covers all of our working terms. So issues to deal with costing, with deliverables, with turnover times, just with general terms of engagement that allow for us to be happy, you know, as we go throughout, as we work on the project and that sort of thing. And then once that's signed, sealed and delivered, then I will then start working on the project. So it's very collaborative on my end where I tend to like to also include and involve my clients in the project as much as possible. And so I set up a central workspace on Notion where we can exchange ideas, where we can sort of shorten the feedback loop, where everyone has access to everything. So at any stage of the project, they can see exactly what's going on. They can see what assets are being created and that sort of thing. So when it actually comes to the design process of it, I'm going to start off with the visual mood boarding phase, which is basically putting together or curating some reference images that capture the essence of the brand or how we are trying to get it to look like. 
once that's approved, then I go into development, which will obviously be very different depending on what the project is. So it could be, you know, like the logo suite and then colors type, supporting assets like iconography, brand patterns, maybe illustrations to accompany some of the assets that have been created and that sort of thing. And then I will iterate on that, of which in my project proposal, I also stipulate how many rounds of revision are allowed for the project, depending on the price and everything. And then once it's happiness and joy, you know, we've sort of worked through it. We've edited what needs to be edited. We've revised what needs to be revised. Then I will hand over all the asset files to them, inclusive of all the high resolution formats, inclusive of the original source files and obviously guidelines and that sort of thing as to how they should retain the integrity of the brand identity that we have just worked on together. And yeah, that's it. So that's sort of how I I cycle through it. But it's all also very, 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 very heavily based on research. I think that probably takes me like 80% of the time and then executing everything is like 20% of the time. Because I want to make sure that I am obviously creating something that is distinct, something that's memorable, something that's competitive, but something that also captures the heart and the essence of their story. So, yeah. Do you find that clients often want to skip that research step and they just want to go like right into the creation part? I have had instances where that has happened, but it hasn't been that often in the recent years. But If that has been the case, like that's been an immediate red flag (laughs) Um, because I think the discovery call does help me to sort of get a sense of whether they would be open to my process or not. So if we are on the call and they're like, hey, you know, let's just like skip over that. Don't really matter. Let's just design the logo and let's go. Then I know almost immediately that that's not going to work because there's a lot more work that goes into the visuals or into the final outcome that people are then going to engage with. So it does happen. It has happened. It doesn't happen as often now. But I mean, we are dealing with people at the end of the day. So everyone has a different way of thinking of how things should be done. So there's that. I've often found even when when clients want to skip that step, it always extends the project because what ends up happening is you're making something, you know, you're just sort of jumping right into it. And then you have mm-hmm. to do X number of rounds of revisions, which I like that you put in, like you sort of stipulate, I'm only doing this many revisions. The research helps so you stick to that. So you're not kind of doing this constantly iterating process of trying to appease the client without doing the research first so you can try to get it right the first two or three times as opposed to like here's version 12 of what we've been working (laughs) on like no one has time for that yeah no one has time for that for sure and what I actually wanted to add on to that is to say that when you find that you have clients who sort of jump the gun in that way or want to do that it really takes away from the process in the sense that, like you're saying, you like you definitely will find yourself maybe having to go back to V1 or after you are at V7 of the project and it's really not going to benefit you and it's not going to benefit them either because I think there's going to be a lot of frustration there. Research really, really, really helps you to get to that point where 
also you are not designing according to your client's preference which is another thing that we need to mention because they are going to have like their personal tastes and everything like that which is fair and fine and we should definitely consider that but we need to understand that when it comes to these sort of like branding and visual projects we're also designing to cater or to appeal towards a certain target market or audience so that research is essential it really ensures that hey when we push this out, are we going to be speaking to the right people and then are they going to take it the way that we intend for them to do so? So if anyone is listening and if your client or potential lead is like, no, 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 we're not going to do research, we're just going to skip through this, then I will tell you to not take that project. It's not going to be worth your peace of mind. Yeah. What are the best types of clients for you to work with? So I have had... A broad range of individuals and small businesses and corporates that I've worked with. And I can't even pin it down to who the best kind of client is because I think everyone comes with a different kind of energy and, you know, like a different kind of vibe. But what I'll say is that in general, some of the projects that I've really enjoyed working on with individuals or small businesses, startups, enterprises who really value the importance of storytelling in one way or another. So if we're on the call and off the bat, they're like, oh, we we started this in 1897 and it was because my grandmother did this and did that. And, you know, and you just get this wholesome story that they just tie together and they tell you like the background of why they're doing it and that sort of thing immediately like I get good vibes from that because I'm like oh this is going to be something good to work on because there's you know a lot more meaning and like there's like that strong emotional connection to what you're doing as opposed to just selling a product so those have been sort of like that class of individuals who come with that sort of energy and you know that value storytelling and one for one another have been some of the best projects that I've worked on. Mm. Now you're in Harare, Zimbabwe. I'd love for you to kind of just paint a picture for the audience. I would say our audience is probably largely in the U.S. Mm-hmm. What does the creative industry look like there? Is it is it centered around Harare? Like, just just kind of give us a window into what the industry is like there. So I would say that it is. So we do have another major city called Bulawayo. So. Uh, Harare is the capital and a lot of what happens on the creative scene definitely happens here. And what's really exciting about this time that we're in is that we're in a season where the creative scene in Harare or in Zimbabwe in general is on the rise. So even when it comes to, you know, novel ways of expressing fashion, of expressing fine art of expressing expressive photography there have been some really cool live exhibitions that have happened they've been you know very urban like fashion and photography exhibitions and shows that have also happened in the most unlikely of places as well where you would see these sort of things and it's just been really exciting seeing how you know young Zimbabwean creators are really stepping up are really stepping into their own are really honing their craft and are really thinking of new ways of expressing the ideas. So it's on the rise. It's on the rise. I'm hoping that it infiltrates and sort of starts to penetrate, you know, across borders, overseas. But 
there's a lot, a lot, a lot of exciting things that are happening currently. Have you been able to tap into a creative community where you're at? So I am a part of creative communities, not just here alone. I think if anything, when it comes to more of the work that I do with regards to brand and web, there's definitely room for there to be something that sort of unites creatives who do the same thing that I do. But that is, it's there, but it's not there. I know that's very vague, (laughs) but it makes so much sense in my head. I think there's definitely room to see where that can go and what can be done with regards to that. But in terms of just general design communities and stuff like that, I am a part of and have had the wonderful opportunity to connect with other African creatives on the continent who are based in different cities to me. So that's that's something that I've been able to do. Well, I think if, you know, the, the creative scene is on the rise, like you mentioned, it kind of, I guess, would make sense that there's maybe not like a lot of creative groups yet because things are still, it's in that sort of burgeoning state where stuff's beginning, stuff's starting to pop off, stuff is starting to mm. gain attention and gain traction. So mm. it's probably just a visibility thing, I would imagine at this point, because yeah, I think it might just be a visibility thing. I'm completely guessing. I have no idea what it's like <laughs> in Zimbabwe, <laughs> but I, I just know like usually when it's, when I've talked with other people in other cities, you know, all across the world, when they've had those sort of small design spaces or creative spaces that are starting to pop up, the community just hasn't coalesced yet around mm-hmm. something. So I think as the scene rises, those types of things will happen. Like, I think you'll be able to find some community there. But it's good, like you said, that you've been able to sort of find it elsewhere, too. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. I think it's definitely a visibility thing, for sure. But it's something that we're slowly breaking into. But yeah. Everything in strides, I would say. Yeah. Well, let's learn more about you as a person. I know you kind of gave us a, a hint into your your kind of daily creative routine, but I'd love to hear more about like you growing up. Were you really into like design and art as a kid? Like, tell me more about that. So I always enjoy talking about my childhood. Um, it's a very special, special time for me. I grew up with what I would say were liberal parents in the sense that they let me explore. So both my parents were vet surgeons and we lived in a very small town here in in Zimbabwe called Norton. It's, it's very nice. It's very peaceful there. So I say liberal in the sense that whenever my parents went out on like side visits, whether it was to, to farms for vaccinations and that sort of thing, they'll sort of let me wonder off and see what I could find. I don't know if that's dangerous or not, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, they kind of let me do it. I mean, to the point that on one of my site visits with my dad, I sort of snuck into an ostrich pen and I stole a massive ostrich egg. And I surprised <laughs> my dad when we got home and he was like, what is that? When did that happen? I was like, well, listen, you kind of let me wonder off. So that's what happened. Um, <laughs> But I do find that even from that, like it really sort of opened up my mind in terms of how I I thought and what I did. So I spent a lot of time outside. I built a lot of sandcastles. I played with dirt. I built things with sticks. So because of that, even when I then started going to primary school, I'm not sure what you would call it, but 
when you're like maybe like six years old and you start going off to school, so we call it primary school, I found myself also taking time out to make like special DIY cards for my family members at that young age for special occasions. So if my aunt had a birthday, if my cousin had a birthday, I would draw my favorite cartoon characters on the front of the card. Just, you know, a blank sheet of paper, fold it in half, draw my favorite characters, color them in and give that to them as a birthday card. So I think the creative sort of inclinations and the creative bone or creative DNA has been there from the time that I was born, really. But I didn't know that I could actually sort of capitalize on it or I could really like bring it in and do something with it, which is why, like you mentioned earlier, like as we were talking before this, that I went on to study science instead of anything creative. (laughs) <laughs> so instead of anything design related, I think maybe it probably worked as well because my parents essentially would have been in the scientific field because of, you know, like the veterinary surgery and all of that. So it made sense for me to also do something in line with that or try and go into the scientific field. But yeah, I kind of realized it much later after I graduated where I was like, wait, okay, there's this thing called design and I could probably take it up and, you know, let's see where it goes. But again, I wouldn't say that it's something that I really thought of. Like it happened also in a very freakish way because after I graduated from university in 2014, I was job hunting for six months at the start of 2015 and I couldn't find anything anywhere I put my CV in the most random corners of the world and nothing came up and I was so frustrated and I had no idea what I was going to do so in order to curb my frustration I decided that I needed to teach myself a new skill but even how design came about again maybe it's divine order maybe it's something in the universe I don't know what it is I was on YouTube and my top recommended video was a Photoshop tutorial. <laughs> and it's so weird, Maurice, because I had never heard of Photoshop before. And I had never remotely, you could be like, maybe the algorithm was doing things or whatever. But I had not even searched anything, anything that is even closely linked to anything to do with Photoshop. So it was so weird. I just kind of clicked into it and my mind was blown Because I was like, wait, are you telling me that people can actually do this with your computers and people make money from this? (laughs) And it's a whole thing that you can do? It was so bizarre to me. So that's how it sort of started. And I started uh, self-learning and design. And I also happened to get a full-time job that I started going to towards like the middle of May in Mm -hmm. education. So I worked in education for six years with children aged between six and 12 years old. And I was in the sports and coaching and conditioning department at the school. So in line more with like the human physiology part of what I studied. But yeah, I was learning design on the side. I would go to work and come back and be like, wait, what can I learn today? Like, let me pull up another YouTube tutorial. And at the time I had a jet engine of a laptop and I had cracked Photoshop. (laughs) so um yeah I don't know if the audience will be familiar with this but maybe it's going to show my age too but it was a time of torrents as well so you could like sort of download the torrent for photoshop yeah yeah so that's what I did and it just kind of stuck and I loved it and 
I just kept going with it up until eventually I left my job at the end of 2020. I was like, I'm going to be a full-time creative solopreneur. And it's been one hell of a ride ever since then. Yeah, I think there's certainly going to be a good bit of our audience that relates to using a cracked version of Photoshop to start <laughs> to start learning <laughs> about how to design. That's how I started. I, I was using a cracked version of Photoshop and I was going to a local bookstore and I mean, I'm dating myself now. This is like early, not early, maybe like mid 2000s or so, like 2004, mm-hmm. 2005, like looking at because there used to be these books published about Photoshop, like Photoshop six, dirty tips and tricks. And it will show you all <laughs> these different little like effects that you could make. Like this is how you make a metal effect. This is how you make a gold effect. This is how you make a water effect. And I would I didn't have the money to purchase those books because those things were $50. I was like, I don't have $50 to, to buy this book. But what I can do is write down all the steps in my notebook and take it back home. Or or I could take a picture because I had this little like dinky point and shoot camera. And I would take a picture of the page and just like go back home and download the pictures and have the picture up and then have Photoshop up and try to like mimic the steps and stuff. So, I mean, that's how you learn. It's that hands on kind of stuff. So I I, I completely, (laughs) completely understand where you're coming from there. Yeah, I mean, it's a real life case of trust the process. Yeah. When you look back at your time in college, like you were studying human anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, in hindsight, did you see any elements of design in that work? Yeah, actually, because now, especially when it comes to like maybe my research methodology just for creative project I see that I borrow a lot from what I learned during that time so even when it comes to general experiments like obviously you've got to know what sort of equipment you're going to use you're going to know what you need in order to get a certain result you're going to have to evaluate that result maybe you're going to have to redo things and that sort of thing so that entire process of being able to design an experiment I think is the same thing that I use now when it comes to coming up with concepts for brands the research part of it definitely comes from there because I can read (laughs) any sort of you know like very what may seem like very boring content especially within my line of work and my influences like I probably need to also read like research papers see what other maybe anthropologists or just historians have come up with with regards to a certain topic. So that's pages and pages of just literature. And I blur through that with ease. (laughs) It doesn't even feel like anything to me because I think just having been trained in a specific way when it came to my formal education, like really has helped a lot. And more so even when it comes to coming up with solutions and, you know, dissecting briefs and that sort of thing, I see a lot of my scientific background coming to play there. In hindsight, I'm definitely grateful for it because I think it's made me a better creative and it's also made me a a better problem solver and a better thinker. So, yeah, I, I definitely see how the two worlds come together to form something quite beautiful. Yeah, that that's great that your scientific background influences your approach because you know we were talking earlier about research if you were a doctor you just tried to like diagnose someone or just jump right in without doing research like that would not you would not be a good doctor so similarly it's the same way with design you have to sort of do that research to know well what's the best 
approach? Like, how do I know the best way to sort of tackle this particular thing? As you mentioned that, it just reminded me of of what I've went through, like as a, a math, I don't want to say a mathematician, but my degree is in math. I didn't study design professionally. I just studied as a, a hobby and managed to turn it into a career. And when I look back, even at the times where I was drawing 3D graphs by hand on a chalkboard or, you know, trying to create certain graphs and functions in Mathematica or whatever, you know, tessellations, fractals, et cetera. Like mm-hmm. there's design in those elements too. There's a lot of design in math that I don't think probably, I don't want to say traditional designers, but I want, I think most designers probably don't look at math that way. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I, I even mentioned it and folks are like, oh, math. Oh, I hate math. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I mean, I, mean, I like I math. You know, I don't blame them. It's math, <laughs> but. <laughs> but I mean, I think what math does, and probably you know, similarly to what you have went through studying, you know, anatomy and physiology and biochemistry, like it gives you a different way to process information. Mm-hmm. So for you, it's really about making sure that you have that thorough research to execute the designs in the right way. Like when I think about math, math really taught me how to structure my thinking and that I've been able to use in proofs, in proposals, in any sorts of things when it comes to kind of getting that message across succinctly to a client or something like that. So, you know, for designers out there that are like, oh, the sciences, like don't rule out the sciences. There's ways that you can sort of tie these things together. Yeah. And it's actually so interesting because like, like you're saying, it really like shapes your process and how you dissect creativity in general. I've had the most interesting conversations. I feel like some of the most interesting conversations I've had are obviously with you right now, because this is very enlightening, Uh, (laughs) but, (laughs) but also with people who have made career pivots. So accountants who are now creatives or medical doctors, which is so crazy, who are now creatives, or engineers who are now creatives. And also just like looking into their process and how they do things and how even the final outcome looks. It's so interesting because like you see how, you know, based off of like the different professional backgrounds or the different educational backgrounds, right, the process is just going to be entirely different, but the outcome is just going to be, is going to be just as beautiful. Sorry. So it's, it's just really interesting just seeing how people like merge all these like different worlds and then just come up with like this solid body of creative work. It's, it's fascinating to me. What do you want our audience to know about, I guess, design in Zimbabwe? Like, what do you want them to know about, you know, whether it's the work that you see coming out of it, other creatives that you know that, you know, are kind of on the rise. What do you want to let our audience know about that? Oh, gosh, there's so much. I just wish that this was like a video presentation and I could show you some of the work because it's so (laughs) good. But I think of anything, there's a shift. There's a shift. And I definitely want to speak on this, but not in greater detail because... That's not why we're here. But I think there has been a lot of external imposition on what creative work looks like or should look like based off of history and, you know, colonization and everything that has happened. So there's this massive shift where what we are trying to do is to decolonize design in the sense that we want to say, hey, 
design can actually look like this and that's perfectly fine. Photography can look like this and that's perfectly fine. So if anything, like I was referring to earlier within the creative scene in Zimbabwe, there is definitely a lot that is coming up and on the rise. But even as you engage with the visuals, when you engage with the patterns, with the colors, with the execution. And I spoke of how you have these fashion shows that are being done in the most unlikely locations. You see that there's definitely this big drive to ensure that, you know, like the work is great, but also the way that the work is executed and the way that people engage with the work is unlike anything that we've seen before. So it's it's really, really exciting just seeing how more young Africans are stepping into their own, really claiming and owning their identity and are just saying, hey, this may be a lot for people to take in. Maybe it's too African, right? Maybe it's just too much energy, but it's fine because this is who we are and we want to be able to tell our story the way that it should be told. So yeah, it's fun times ahead. Fun times ahead. (laughs) Let's look into the future. Two years from now, five years from now, I believe that Zimbabwe and Zimbabwean creativity and Zimbabwean design is going to be on a whole other level. What do you consider to be your biggest success in your design career so far? I am going to go more on the qualitative route where I feel like my biggest success has been the chance and the opportunity to be able to connect with other creatives who are like me and have them sort of recognize themselves in the work that I do. I could easily say something like, oh, like I worked with a client who paid me X amount or, you know, I did this and and that. But I think that just the sense of community is something that has really, 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 really impacted me the most. I get so much joy when I'm able to talk to or someone who's just like an up and coming designer or thinking of design and they're based maybe in like Kenya or they're based in Burundi and they just write me a message on social. They're like, hey, like I saw your work and I just absolutely like feel already inspired that I can actually sort of tap into my own culture and see what I can come up with and that sort of thing. And that is something that really, 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 like I can wake up every day to that and not get paid a single dime and I'll be fine. So that has been my biggest success, my biggest achievement. And I want to see how I can continue to build on that and see how I can continue to hopefully inspire and encourage other young African creatives to really step up and, you know, showcase your work and showcase their heritage, their culture, their tradition, and just take that to the global market. So, yeah, that's 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 it for me. Now, you've mentioned, I read this in, um, as I was sort of doing my research, you mentioned that you find inspiration from within when it comes to your work. Can you talk with me mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Like, how do you build that that sort of internal fortitude? How do you build that? <laughs> so it hasn't always been there. And I should be very honest about that, because I think that as we were growing up and also the public education system that we're exposed to, a lot of what we were taught doesn't really resonate with who we are. Uh, so I probably at that point knew a lot more about 
Western history than I did about my own history. And I think that is something that needs to be fixed. So the resolve, I guess, or the tenacity has really come from wanting to do more when it comes to that. And I sort of had my light bulb moment when I encountered a book by well-known Zimbabwean graphic designer, but he's also known in the international community. His name is Professor Sakima Fundigwa. Mm -hmm. He actually went to school in New York, I believe. So he studied there and then he came back and he started the first graphic design school here in Zimbabwe. He's also given a TED talk. And in his TED talk, he talks about looking for inspiration within. So after encountering his book, which is called African Alphabets, I was completely blown away because Again, it comes back to that whole issue of documentation where I didn't really know that it was possible to document African design systems in the way that he did. And it's mostly based on typography and it's absolutely fascinating stuff. So if anything, that's where the initial point of contact or inspiration came from. And it just made so much sense to me because I had sort of been lost in this design world where I was doing anything and everything. And I'm sure you can attest to this as well. Like when you start out, like you do everything, you'll do a company profile, you will do a brochure, like you will do a flyer, a poster. doesn't really matter what the subject matter is. I mean, it does. <laughs> Don't get me wrong because people mm-hmm. will be like, hey, what kind of things were you designing? <laughs> but not in that sense. But that that point gave me a sense of direction and really inspired me to be like, hey, actually, we can flip this thing around. Let's take all of these fundamentals that we've learned and convey them uh, into a message that I would actually want for people to engage with and a message that I would want to see myself in. So I guess that is where sort of like that internal resolution has come from and it's been the driving and motivating factor ever since then to be like what can I do today what can I do different how can I take this story that people may have perceived in this way or you know this narrative and turn it into something that's afro positive because there are a lot of stories there are a lot of things that I said about who we are and what we do and where we eat and where we live and you know and that sort of thing and the world may Uh, see us a certain way but I'm like no actually if we take power and we actually tell a story the way that it's supposed to be told then there's so much more that we can actually get out of that so really the looking within is to say as much as I can you know go out and seek inspiration on online on Pinterest on Behance what is in my backyard because when you look at the global and historical context, even between the two of us, right, we may share the same skin color, but when it comes to our historical context, our global context, there's absolutely no way that you would be able to design like a designer who is in Arada, Zimbabwe, when you're in, in Atlanta, Georgia, mm-hmm. right? It's just different. So that's where really the looking within comes into to be like, hey, what am I exposed to? What do I see on a daily? What sort of conversations can I have to seek inspiration? Can I go and speak to a roadside vendor and find out how he weaves basket? Can I have a conversation with my grandmother about how she designed her mud hut kitchen and all the paintings and, you know, murals that are on the outside? You know, things like that really, really make a difference because you actually start to see that there's creativity in a lot of the crafts and 
that I see around me and how can I leverage that? What can I draw from their processes as well? And how can I sort of turn that into this fresh thing and tell it in a different way for everyone else on the internet to interact with? So that is really uh, where it comes from. At this stage of your career, how do you define success? Oh, that is a loaded question now, isn't it? <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, because I've, I've really got to think about it. But I think at this stage, um, what I think is really cool and what I'm really grateful for is the fact that even um, in interactions where I may not be there, so whether it's physical spaces, whether it's calls, it's the fact that people are able to sort of recognize my work. And I think that's so cool. I get humbled every single time when I go on LinkedIn and someone will maybe like tag me or like mention me and be like, hey, is this your work? And I'll be like, oh, no, it's not my work. But I think that it's so cool that you think that it could be my work. So that really, 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 really like inspires me and motivates me to keep going. Just the fact that I am in a position where people tend to think of me when it comes to like a certain style or when it comes to like a certain interpretation of design, I think is super cool. So that is one of my proudest moments, I think. And I've been working hard at it. So I'm glad that it's paying off. What advice would you give to any aspiring designers out there that maybe want to sort of follow in your footsteps? What would you tell them? This is going to sound so cliche, but I think the thing is to to just go for it. I have come to learn that there are beautiful things that grow when you step outside of your comfort zone. It's not the easiest thing to do, but I think that if you put yourself in a position where you're like, okay, this is a little bit crazy. It's a little bit scary. I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to pull this off but I'm going to go for it, which is sort of what I had to do. So I spoke of leaving my job, but I was sort of unsay, like unfairly dismissed in pandemic year in 2020. It was the most heartbreaking experience ever. Uh, and I was kind of left thinking, whoa, like what am I going to do with this thing? And how am I going to make money? And how am I going to take care of myself? And everything like that. But you realize that certain doors get shut and they get shut in the most uncomfortable way ever because they're sort of pushing you to get to the next thing, to start mm -hmm. working on the next thing. So if anything, if it feels a little bit scary, if it feels like you have absolutely no idea how you're going to do it, then I would encourage you to go for that thing because you never know what's going to come out of it. But I mean, go with it, go in it, sorry, having a plan of sorts. It may not be something that's super solid, but at least make sure that you work on your strategy. Make sure that you know what it is that you want to be doing and where you're going to be doing it and who you're going to be doing with. Like, write all of that down and see if you can break it down into actionable steps and then see how far you can push it. But that really would be my advice. If you want to make a career pivot too. I mean, former mathematician who says that he doesn't want to call himself a mathematician <laughs> you know and former scientist ish over here so if you also want to you know transition if you want to go over the bridge 
it's never too late. You can always do that as well. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what do you want your next chapter to look like? Oh, I love this. I definitely see myself in design education. So as we have been talking, I've been talking about, you know, documenting processes and that sort of thing. So and I am grateful that I've already sort of started dipping my toes in design education when it comes to my mentorship and my coaching role with Flux Academy. So we work with brand, we work with students across the world who enroll for various design programs. And one of them happens to be a brand design program. So I sort of offer them support with that. I offer them feedback as they go through the modules and everything like that. So it's a very diverse group of students, as young as 20, as old as 70. So, you, you know, it's, it's very interesting seeing what that is like but it really uh, feels like sort of the next step for me because I really want to see myself more in the African design education space so can we have more design curriculum like can we have more design curriculum that is geared towards African creators can we get more literature can we get more books can we get more digital platforms that help African students learn about design and a more African aesthetic you know, things like that. So that's definitely where I would want to see myself five years from now. And just to, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you, about your work and everything? Where can they find that online? I am everywhere except for TikTok because it scares me. Uh, <laughs> I have a burner account on TikTok where I just follow amazing people, but the comment section scares me there. Um, <laughs> so, so you can always uh, find me on my website, so fungidube.com. All my social links are also on my website, so you can find my Behance, you can find my Twitter, you can find my Instagram. You can also find my LinkedIn there, but it's fungidube.com. All right, sounds good. Funge Dube, I want to thank you so much for for coming on the show. One, I think, you know, it's it's awesome that you can give us just a window into what it's like being a creative solopreneur in Africa, in Zimbabwe, like giving us a sense of what that looks like. But also just thank you for sharing your story about just determination and passion and how you've been able to really cultivate that creative engine within to create great work and showing people that you don't necessarily have to go down a specific path, no pun intended for the name of the show, but <laughs> you don't have to go down a specific path in order to become a creative, be a creative, and even to leverage your own culture in the work that you do. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun. Huh? Big, big thanks to Fungi Dube, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Fungi and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is supported by Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They are always looking to expand their roster of freelance design consultants in the U.S., particularly brand strategists, copywriters, graphic designers, and web developers. If you know how to deliver excellent creative work reliably and enjoy the autonomy of a virtual-based freelance lifestyle with no non-competes, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio located in Atlanta, Georgia. Our executive producer is Maurice Cherry, and our editor and audio engineer is RJ Basilio. Intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are courtesy of Brevity and Wit. If you like this episode, then let us know. We're on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you could follow us on Spotify or Amazon Music. Uh, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, which we'll read right here on the show. Or you can leave us a message on our hotline at 626-603-0310. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.